preach the good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, to free the prisoners, recovery of sight to those who are blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to forgive the debts. That's the gospel. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. It's my privilege to speak today with the Reverend Canon John Peterson in his room at St. George College in Jerusalem. He's the former Dean of St. George's College for 12 years, the Secretary General of the Worldwide Anglican Communion for 10 years, and currently Director of the Center for Global Justice and Reconciliation at the Washington National Cathedral. Canon Peterson, an honor to speak with you today. Thank you so very much. So let me ask right off, what brings you to the Holy Land this trip? Well, the reason I'm here for this trip is because of a potential relationship with MD Anderson in Houston, the Great Cancer Center. The church in Jerusalem is exploring the possibility of establishing a cancer center in Gaza. It would be the first cancer center in Gaza. And to do that, MD Anderson might be our likely partner. And so that's the reason I'm here right now. So you see a great need for cancer treatment there. Is there any kind of treatment presently? No, there is no cancer treatment now. If someone gets cancer, they can hope that they can get a permit from the Israelis to leave Gaza to come to Jerusalem or to Jordan, to Amman, to the King Hussein Cancer Center in Amman or the Augusta Victoria Hospital on the Mount of Olives here in Jerusalem. But if you don't get that permit, we've basically gotten your death warrant. I wonder if I could work back in time just a little bit as Secretary General of the Worldwide Anglican Communion, holding any sort of organization of people who have opinions and who think about things must be interesting to try and and to come to a consensus. Would you talk a little bit about that experience? Sure. I suspect the one thing that stands out in my mind from the 10 years that I was Secretary General is the enormous diversity of opinion and the thousands of cultures that we have in the Anglican Communion. We are in 150 countries, uh, making us the second largest worldwide uh, communion. You can just imagine from Africa to Australia to Philippines to North America, Europe, you can just imagine the tremendous diversity of people, particularly being impacted by the colonial periods in which the Church of England came, for example, to Jerusalem. And our church here came as a result of that church movement that happened back in 1854. And so the tremendous diversity that you have and as a result of thousands of different theologies in many ways that one has as a result of this global family in which we live. I think many people are surprised to find out how many Arab Christians there are. I think people are not used to putting those two words together. Well, I have a wonderful story to tell about that. A few years ago, while I was dean, I gave a lecture on every Saturday night at the college about uh, the church and churches in Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem claims, 
and rightfully so, that they go back to the Acts of the Apostles on the first day of Pentecost. And the church here is very proud of being a Pentecostal church. Uh, and I don't mean Pentecostal in a denominational, but coming out of the Pentecost experience. And the next day, much to my chagrin in many respects, uh, one of the people in the course went over to the cathedral, St. George's Cathedral, and they started talking with a grand old lady at that time, now a part of the communion of saints, and asked her, when did you become a Christian? Her name was Mary Habibi. When did you become a Christian? And Mary first had a frown on her face, and then that frown turned into a smile. And she said, I have been a Christian since the first day of Pentecost. Now, not many people in the United States or in Europe could possibly say that. For Mary understands the church here as having its roots that first day. And of course, when you look at the Pentecost account in the Acts of the Apostles, all the different peoples who are there, and it says, the Acts of the Apostles says, and there were Arabs present. And Mary understood herself as being part of that great Arab family present in Jerusalem on that first day of Pentecost. I went to the service yesterday, and I heard both English and Arabic together alternating, yes. and it was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. That, and there's all the services here at St. George's Cathedral are in two languages at least because of the great pilgrimage site that St. George's is, plus the indigenous congregation, which is Palestinian and Christian. Most people, of course, associate Palestine, Jordan, Israel as being Jewish, Israeli, but Hebrew speaking there, of course. But in Palestine, of course, it's Arabic and therefore Muslim. But of course, the great Christian tradition started here and it continues to be here, but we just don't hear much about it today. I wonder if I could ask about your background growing up in or out of a church and when you first felt like you recognized that you were someone who had faith, that you had some, some real belief in God. Well, first off, I'm a Minnesotan. <laughs> I'm, my background, my family lineage is all Swede, coming from northern Minnesota. And I was raised, simply because there was no Lutheran church in the town where my grandparents landed there as immigrants, they joined the Congregational Church. And it wasn't until I was in seminary, actually, that I changed and I became an Episcopalian. And my journey in the church, my journey of faith, certainly has been influenced tremendously by the blessing that God has given to me to be an international figure in the church and my opportunities to serve the international church, both as secretary general and everything. So my faith journey is very much influenced by the multiculturalness of my ministry. So what does a kid from Minnesota have happen that makes them decide to go to seminary and become an Episcopal priest? Well, I, I suspect that's a question I ask myself many times. <laughs> and many times I'm pinching myself, what am I doing here? Uh, but uh, it's, it was a matter of nurturing in the faith. I had it when I was in the Congregational Church in high school. We had a fantastic teacher, very well-read in church history. 
and she had a tremendous impact on my life. Her name was Elma McDonald. I'll never forget her. And she, she really helped me to start to understand my journey as I'm not an individual today, but I am an individual that has been created out of a historical past, which I am a part of now. You've also, for years, been part of the American Religious Town Hall, which people can find online. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Well, it's a program that's on every week. It's the oldest American Religious Town Hall program, and we have programs every single week, and there are eight or nine of us on the panel. Uh, On each program, there are six of us, and we respond to contemporary issues today in the church, much of it dealing with religious liberty. One of the major concerns of the program is religious liberty. Certainly, the Mormons would have a great keen interest in religious liberty simply uh, because of the type of discrimination as well as, can't say warfare, but certainly the difficulties that uh, Mormons have had and something that we have to take especially seriously, living in a society that uh, is more and more unreligious or non-religious and also to be sensitive to our brothers and sisters who are in this land and many places in which they live under constant threat of persecution. We in the United States do not understand what religious persecution is. Ask a Syrian Christian who we are now trying to keep out of our country. Ask a Syrian Christian what it means to be persecuted. And ask a Syrian Christian who no longer has a place to worship, a home to go to. And then we do not allow them to come into the United States to live to join one of our churches, be it Mormon, be it Episcopalian. Ask them what religious persecution is. Ask them what it means, religious liberty. With your work here in the area, do you have any accurate estimate of how many Christians there are in the Middle Eastern area? The figure is certainly dropping significantly. I suspect of the total population in Israel-Palestine today, the, the most optimistic figure that is given that it's two, Christianity is 2% of the population. I don't believe it for a minute. I think that the number is perhaps between one and a half, one, one and a half, and that might even be high. I mean, Christians have basically immigrated uh, from this land. And now throughout the whole Middle East, certainly the Syrian situation. I have many friends, actually, Christian friends living in Syria, particularly in the Latakia area, Latakia area, and they're all, they're leaving. They're just, they, they, they cannot live there anymore. You find the same type of crisis today in Egypt for sure. Lebanon is holding on for dear life, but Lebanon has really dealt with the issue quite well because within their own governmental structures, they recognize a Christians, they recognize us, the Sunni Muslims and the Shia Muslims, and so their government is formed with those tripartite workings, which is certainly um, something that other countries I would recommend trying as well. That doesn't mean that for a second that Lebanon doesn't have its problems, but Lebanon is at least trying to work with the diversity within their cultural religious traditions. I wonder if I could go for a minute from global to personal. What are the things, whether it's religious observance or the work you do, that make you feel like you're in touch with God in a personal way or that God is working in your life? 
Well, I, I think that's an extremely serious question, and I would hope that any response to a question like that is done reflectively uh, because uh, so many times I think that we might all think that we are working for the benefit of the church, etc. And I think we have to be very careful that it isn't simply for our own self-engrandizement. That being said, when one has an opportunity, I serve on a couple of children's center boards here in Jerusalem. And to be able to see and to be able to work with to be able to raise money to enable these children's centers to be able to start dealing with problems that are just as serious here as they are in the United States, like autism and the different disorders. Um, you know, I see God's hand at that type of work. And anything that I can do as an as a individual to be able to help support that, I hope that God is using my voice, my hands, to be able to reach out. Uh, but we have to also be careful because so much of the Christian movement, for example, during the colonial periods, was was not necessarily to carry the gospel. That was a pretext for doing it. But much of it was to, for the glory of England and, and establishing the monarchy in different parts of the world, etc. So I think that we have to be very careful in relationship to how we understand proselytizing today, how what we do, and that we should have the purest motivations that we do this because of Jesus and how important that manifestation of that God-man is in relationship to who we are as a human being. And, and our call, therefore, to be like Jesus, to be that icon, to be able to reach out to the poor, the oppressed, the destitute. That seems to be the core of the gospel. And if we do that in the pureness of the heart, then um, Jesus will smile on us. And you feel that? Inshallah, Yes. I'm also very careful never to blow myself up or anything else. Uh, that, that's not the issue. The issue is what we do and how are we supporting the work that Jesus calls us to do. If you look back on the vantage of several decades of experience as a, a believer, a member of a faith, an administrator, a preacher, all of the different aspects that you've been involved in, are there things that you've come to feel differently about or that you would speak differently about now than you would have then as you've made your journey through your faith? Oh, of course. Um, it helps to be an old man like I am um, <laughs> uh, because your one's faith is, of course, it, it, it is never something that is static. But every experience you have gives a new dimension to that faith. And because I've been so blessed to have an international ministry I have been influenced, impacted from people from maybe a hundred different countries. Well, imagine. It's, it's a tremendous experience, and, and your faith cannot be the same. When you go into a church, for example, in Hong Kong, that is made in the form of a pagoda, imagine. That certainly is not the Washington National Cathedral. That is not your temple in Salt Lake City. A pagoda. And I just think that that's a marvelous experience to, ha to be able to enter into a different cultural understanding of who Jesus is. And it's bound to impact you as a human being when I'm preaching there. You know, I look around. The surrounding is totally different. But the people there 
are all Christians, looking very different than I am, but the impact that they make on my life, and I can't go out and speak the same way after I leave a place like that than I did before I walked in. Because every experience one has, and age here is a benefit. You just have such a greater well to draw upon. I wonder if you have a scripture or a parable or a story that is kind of a touchstone for you, something that that you use to to reflect on and that's particularly meaningful to you. Well, without a doubt, um, the gospel that is most important to me, not not most important, Yes, it is. It's the most important to me because uh, it's it's Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth in which he really presents his ministry and the challenges of the ministry. He gives this great sermon in Nazareth. And actually, on one of your trips, you as the listening audience make to Nazareth, go to Christ Church Nazareth, the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church in Nazareth, because in Arabic, in, in front of the altar, is this text from Luke 4. And it's wonderful to be able to see it in Arabic. We can't read it, but we can all know exactly what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Five things Jesus lays out. Jesus presents to us in this text to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty those who are oppressed, and the toughest one of all, toughest one of all, and we never talk about it, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's favor, the Jubilee. And what happens in the Jubilee? We forgive all the debts. We forgive all the debts. How we like as Christians to forget that part of Jesus' message, that we forgive the debts, people who owe us money. The debts are canceled in the acceptable year of the Lord. A radical gospel. Totally radical. And here Jesus presents to us, yeah, which is tough for all of us. If, If I could live my life being able to fully live into this gospel, preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, to free the prisoners who are in our jails, unwarranted, with no hope, recovery of sight to those who are blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, despised, rejected from society, and to forgive the debts. That's the gospel. That also sounds a lot like what I know of your life's work. Hopefully, yes. That's what we're trying to do. The Reverend Canon John Peterson, he's currently the director of the Center for Global Justice and Reconciliation at the Washington National Cathedral, speaking to him in Jerusalem at St. George's Cathedral. Canon Peterson, thank you again. It's an honor to hear you speak and share your faith. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll dig a little deeper into those verses from Luke 4 that Canon Peterson is so passionate about, and we'll hear from a panel of listeners as they discuss the ideas presented by our guest. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith.
This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. Dr. Sean D. Hopkin is an assistant professor of ancient scripture at BYU with a Ph.D. in Hebrew studies from the University of Texas at Austin. And he has a strong interest in interfaith outreach, has served as president of the University of Texas Interfaith Council while he was there at the University of Texas. I take it from your writings and a recently published book called Opening Isaiah that you like Isaiah. Isaiah matters to me. I get to teach Isaiah regularly as part of my professorial responsibilities. I'm teaching a couple of sections of Isaiah right now. And there's a different kind of energy in the room, whether that's from me or from the students, or I I believe it's from the text whenever I'm teaching Isaiah. I just find it absolutely beautiful. When you have a classroom of curious college students who are there to study Isaiah, do you feel like they arrive with, please, unveil the mystery for me? Yeah, well, it is a little a little bit tricky to manage expectations in the sense that it's going to reward you, but it's going to take personal effort. I'm not going to be able to just all of a sudden say, ah, here is the answer to this verse in Isaiah. It's just not how Isaiah works. You dig, and then you come back, and there's more, and you come back, and there's more, but it's all personal effort rewarded. I'm trying to give tools to guide people in the right direction. Well, you're in good company because it seems that Jesus liked Isaiah too. Uh, There are a lot of prophets that uh, were fond of Isaiah. That is the truth. I invited you specifically to talk about some verses that our guest, Canon Peterson, brought up. This is sort of a touchstone for him in, in what he's based his life ministry on. Is this the enunciation of his ministry? Yes. Yeah, that is clearly what he's doing and and how he's portrayed in Luke. This is the moment he is going to say, here's what I'm here for. Uh, And the passage has, the Lord hath anointed me. And that, that word is significant. I am Messiah. I am the anointed one is the way we should probably understand what he's saying there. Is that the phrase? Is that why he chose this particular passage, do you think? Well, it, it certainly is bold in that sense, right? So he's, he's not holding back. He is saying, this day are these words fulfilled in your ears. The Lord hath anointed me. He's been anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit to go forth. But then uh, the description, of course, is just so beautiful. And he's trying to point them towards what his role will be. And, and you may notice in this quotation in Luke, he... He stops right before a particular phrase. So he stops at to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The next phrase is, and the day of vengeance of our God, which is sort of fascinating that he chooses not to include that. Mm. He could have, but, but it doesn't really seem to define what he's after here in his mortal ministry. Preach the gospel to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, deliverance to the captives, recovering to the site. Many of these he had already done in the area. Had done and and will continue to do. They've heard of him. They've heard of what he's been doing. And then he's going to continue to do these. Don't miss this. Uh, Let me tell you clearly what you're hearing is true. And this is who I am. Canon Peterson brought up something about this uh, verse 19, preach the acceptable year of the Lord, which is something that I don't think we usually hear. I think we usually think, okay, whatever, Jesus did all those other things. What does that even mean? Yeah, so if you look at the proclaiming of liberty in the first verse, and it's tied, of course, to he's quoting Isaiah, 
But but really, Isaiah is working with some language found in the book of Leviticus. And let me just read to you. So this is Leviticus 25, verses 9 and 10. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the jubilee. So this is a, a jubilee time to sound on the 10th day of the seventh month in the day of atonement shall ye make the trumpet sound and ye shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land. There it is. Unto all the inhabitants thereof, it shall be a jubilee unto you. Ye shall return every man unto his possession. Ye shall return every man unto his family. If you have had to sell yourself into indentured servitude, you are released from servitude. We will reunite the families of uh, Mm. ties of those who have been broken. You were tied to the land, but your servitude caused that tie to be broken. And we will loose, we will loose the, the servitude under which uh, you've been laboring and reunite you in, in a godly state, in a familial state, in a communal state, as opposed to your broken down state of servitude. Quite a thing to look forward to. Absolutely beautiful and and is a remarkable component of the Law of Moses, uh, that there are these set times where people will be released, where this is not an eternal state of being, uh, and it's not an eternal relationship between man and man. But this is God saying there's a natural state or there's a state that I give you anyway that the law will provide that's the state of freedom. So if you're going to go into debt – do it in the 48th or the 49th <laughs> well, year. Well, it actually ended up causing problems because we want to get our profit. There are people who say, "Well, I, I can't, I can't give you a loan because I got to get my, I got to get my 10 cents out of you." <laughs> and so this actually, uh, you know, over history uh, ended up putting the Jewish people into a position at times of money brokers because uh, they could be they, they could lend with non-Jews. And so they began to take that role, but they were m- much more cautious about lending to each other because of the challenges inherent in not being able to charge interest for, for any uh, significant amount of time. Do we have any way of knowing what that 50-year cycle was, the exact dates, no. if, if Christ might have happened to have fulfilled that on the 50th It's year. a fascinating question. It's been asked. We, we just can't know. Uh, there have been those who have played some calendrical games to suggest this or that, but they're, they're probably nothing more than that. Uh, symbolically, we'll just take it as symbolic, right? That that he's saying, my presence creates the Jubilee year. Me, the, What I am doing enacts the jubilee year right but oh if that if that uh, year of his ministry in the synoptic gospels it's presented as a year not as three years and uh, if that year of his ministry is a jubilee year it's even more powerful what's Mm. going on here culminating of course in his death and resurrection it's a beautiful concept isaiah speaks we hear that he speaks messianically i am i will Is he unique in the Old Testament in the amount of time he speaks his revelations that way? I think so. It is a function of prophetic literature, so he's not completely unique in doing it. You you see in the Psalms similar kinds of of language, but he probably does it more than any other. And, And that language he speaks messianically is a certain sort of Christian interpretation of what's going on there, and that's certainly what I believe and what I hold to. But if you think of these as songs, and and you think how a song works. So 
if you've got a love song, whoever wrote the song was had a particular person in mind. Whoever listens to the song, you know, it, mm. it, it resonates for all of us. And so you can speak in first person. And, and there's this sort of universal nature of, of adoration and worship that is possible through this kind of speaking. Let me just say what this passage that Jesus is quoting from in Isaiah is. It's one of the servant songs. And you have this figure of the servant show up in the second half of Isaiah focused on redemption. Who is the servant? And Christ is saying, and, and the Jews had come to understand, well, this, this will be the Messiah. But there are other interpretations of that. In chapter 49, if this is the same figure in Isaiah 49, thou art my servant, O Israel. And so I think a Christian approach approach to that. That's the typical Jewish interpretation, that this is the covenant people, the Jewish people. And I think that's an appropriate interpretation of what Christ is saying is, and I think the way a Christian would view that is Christ is the culmination of the Israelite experience. He is the fullness of that experience in his compassion, in his suffering, in his power, in his function as the opener of prison doors. He is showing what an Israelite, what a covenant disciple should be like. And so I, I really enjoy this concept that as Christ is proclaiming this is his role, well, then that then, since he is the ultimate covenant man or Israelite, then so should that be my role as one who is in a covenant relationship there. I should then seek to do the things that he has modeled for me. So he announces himself, but he also announces what he would hope that all of us would be. And so I, I love thinking about those servant songs in that way. And that's what I heard Canon Peterson do, and I thought it was beautifully appropriate considering the, the nature of these servant songs in Isaiah. Do you have a verse of scripture or other writing that gives or sums up your direction in life? Could someone accurately sum up your beliefs or priorities purely from observing your actions? We invited a group of people to listen to our guests and then respond. Marsh Morford is the father of nine, two of them adopted from Ukraine. He lives on a two-and-a-half-acre hobby farm with 50 sled dogs who run tours near Park City in the winter. He's a post-production coordinator at BYU Broadcasting. Patty Luke is a wife, mother of four, grandmother of 13. She enjoys reading and making quilts for loved ones. Patty has a degree in business education and ran her own tax preparation business. Charles Luke is retired from medical research and the pharmaceutical industry and has a Ph.D. in toxicology. He enjoys camping and outdoor life, including riding ATVs. Peggy Woodruff is mother of six, grandmother of seven. She is a reader, gardener, music lover, and reluctant friend of the deer who eat her vegetable garden. I had particular interest in this uh, gentleman's comments. My father actually grew up as an Episcopal altar boy. And I didn't hear a lot of stories, but a few. And so it fascinated me. I don't know enough about the Episcopal Church. I'd love to know more. And so it was fascinating to hear what he had to say. I had some uh, links with him, too, because my people, my mother's people, uh, originated back northern Minnesota, Chicago. They were Lutherans and Congregationalists, some of them, too. So this sounded like we had some some common uh, background. But I would have liked to hear how he came to God, whether that was just instilled in him as a child or whether he had had experiences that, that brought he, – he referred to them but wasn't very specific. And it made me think of my own 
journey to God. When I was a child, I didn't assume there was going to be anything after life, and I would lie in bed at night, and I would think, what would it be like? What's it going to be like to just stop existing? And to go from that to the point where I knew that God was interested in me, I was about 17 years old, was really an amazing journey. I would have liked to hear more of his. I think that's an interesting question with regard to talking about religion, talking about faith. Is it more important to discuss official, formal, or be more personal? What It's a very different experience. I know when I hear someone speak or teach something along a religious vein, I am always drawn more to a personal experience myself, and it, and it does. It triggers memories and experiences of my own. It seems to me like there are different types of testimonies, if you will, or different types of beliefs. One of them comes from your head, which is what he talked about a lot. The other one comes from your heart and how you feel. And and he talked about that as well, about some of his experiences. And I think that gives you feelings um, that, that goes greater than your intellect or your intelligence as far as belief in God goes. I liked Reverend Peterson's comment where he said, every experience you have gives a new dimension to your faith. And um, I can see that in my own life where every experience I have builds upon my faith, whether it's a good experience or a bad experience. It increases my knowledge and helps me to be a better person. He said that it's important that we follow Jesus. And I think that's what our faith ultimately leads up to, is us trying to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Each experience that we have in life helps us do that. We either draw closer or we draw farther away. And clearly he has had a wide range of experiences where he has gone out to do good for people. The Children's Center, the Cancer Center, where there is no place for people to go to consider treatment. Clearly, he's just gone about doing good. Mm -hmm. It was good to hear that. I wish I had had another half hour of him talking about his going about and doing good experiences, although he may have been too humble to, <laughs> to toot his own horn, but I bet there's a lot there behind what we heard. That, that note that you brought up, Patty, about experience bringing new dimension to our faith, one thing that I've noticed throughout life is that until I experience something, I lack an understanding. I lack an empathy for others. And I've often wondered if that isn't perhaps the greatest reason for our existence is to come to know. And we have to maybe, like this gentleman, have to be willing to go out and experience. We can't remain in a, in a closed environment, uh, mm -hmm. afraid to go beyond our fears and, and our comfort zone. Case in point, we spent some time living in Brazil. And during that time, there was a day of service that we decided to participate in with the local congregations there. And we went to a public school. Well, I had heard about public schools, and I knew that most Brazilians who could afford it sent their children to private schools. 
But we decided to go and help this one particular school. And we walked in and the classrooms, not a book, not a pencil, cupboards empty. There were desks that were carved into on every conceivable space, names and so-and-so loves so-and-so. And the walls, hardly an inch without graffiti. And the, the hallways just beaten up. We were just astonished. Suddenly we knew about public schools. And we went ahead and we got sanders and we sanded off all the desks and we painted all the walls. And I was horrified because they were painting at the same time they were sanding. And I thought there's going to be dust all over these walls. And so I was a little bit horrified. I thought, they're not going to like this job at all. The next day, we found out how thrilled they were to walk in and find clean hallways and clean desks. And and I believe there was also a donation of books and, and school supplies from a certain thing. Giving service to people you haven't known about before really does add that that layer of understanding, doesn't it? It does. It does. And... I know that Reverend Peterson also mentioned religious freedom, religious liberty, and how we here in the United States don't really understand that. That point that he made about Syrian Christians not having a home, that brought brought tears to my eyes because everywhere we go, we've we've moved to different places throughout the United States and each place we move we are we're welcomed, and we find a new home among people of our faith. Mm-hmm. These people lack that, and it, it made me kind of sad to think about that and to realize how, how blessed I am to have religious freedom in my life. You're listening to A Conversation in Good Faith with a group of listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Canon Peterson. Now back to the conversation. I wonder how open we are to others of their faith. I think there's a challenge sometimes. We want to make others like us, and in that way, it adds value. Mm -hmm. That maybe gives us purpose to reach out. There's a sense, at least from his example, at least what he described, and also the Savior himself, it seemed that his love didn't have an agenda. How do we put that agenda aside and love truly, whether or not someone perhaps follows our same path? I know that's a question that I asked, have asked throughout my life, and I wonder, I question whether my, my love is sincere for others maybe who don't think like me, don't look like me. Mm-hmm. That's a good point, Marsh. I yeah. appreciate that. You know, also, Reverend Peterson brought up the Savior's declaration of his mission, the five points of that. And as I thought about his remark about how each of us should be motivated to serve, I thought, you know, he said, One of Christ's missions was to free the prisoners. He specifically talked about jail, but the thought came to my mind that there are lots of different kinds of prisons, not just one with bars, but different kinds of prisons. And it's up to us. I think those people in Brazil, those poor children, they were in a prison. 
in a sense, in that public school. And you went in and freed them from maybe just a moment until those desks were carved <laughs> up again with yeah. graffiti. But um, he also mentioned that this one of the saviors was to give sight to the to the blind. And how many of us are blind in different ways other than physically blind, but different things that we can't see in life? I love those five points that he talked about, reaching, preaching good news to the poor, releasing captives, helping the blind to see liberty to the oppressed, forgiving debts, everything talking about redemption and relief and release. And I thought, how different is that than some elements in our culture who are determined, you know, you've got to hold their feet to the fire. You've got to make people pay. You've got to uh, hold them to a certain standard. And what a soft and wonderful feeling it is to think of just delivering relief and releasing captives and helping people find a home. We've had a special little Christmas this last holiday season. My wife actually came in contact with an old friend uh, that we discovered was was closer by than we thought before. And it was someone that had actually been mean to her in grade school, had been a bully. And they had connected on social media and had just interacted a little bit. And it became clear over this last few months that he was in a difficult situation. He had lost his family. He had uh, made some choices and and ended up in in jail. And my wife desired to reach out to him. And and at the time, actually, he was without a place to live either. He was getting back on his feet, overcoming some addictions. And uh, my wife wondered if we couldn't make our Christmas helping him in some way, and we set out. In the end, he ended up coming and staying with our family over those few days of the holiday. It really turned our focus of, you know, kind of more self, uh, what are we going to get, and what can we give, and how can we share, and how can we provide a, a few moments of maybe relief from challenge. And uh, it was a real blessing for us as much, I'm sure, as it was for him. In fact, my 20-year-old told me this is I think it's been our best Christmas ever and I asked why and it's because of this experience I think you find as much liberation to yourself as you reach out like the Savior showed as those who you serve one of the statements that Reverend Peterson made that I thought was really interesting or really thought-provoking to me was how do we support the work that Jesus has called us to do And I think we're talking about that in different ways. We all have different ways that we can support Jesus in the work that we do, whether it be, like you were mentioned, Peggy, uh, helping with that uh, school in Brazil, cleaning it up and and fixing it up, or adopting a a troubled uh, child. You know, uh, we all have different things that are put in front of us which will allow us to to serve in different ways and, and do what Jesus would like us to do. And, and I think that is the pure love of, of Christ that is uh, spoken of in the, in the New Testament. I think that before we can serve others, we need to 
allow Jesus to enter into our own life. I know as a youth, I didn't really have a religion. My parents were two different religions, and I never really attended either either church. I attended one for a while and was kind of ostracized. And so I, I tended to look at people for what they didn't do. I became very prideful and was always felt like, well, I'm better than them. Well, look at them. <laughs> I'm better than them. Oh, look at them. They're a whatever faith, and oh, I'm better than them. But then there came a point in my life when I realized I was not better than any of them. And at that point, I needed to turn to my Savior and ask him, what do you want me to do? How can I serve? How can I, how can I be like him? And so the rest of my life is been trying to figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) And I love the way he talked about motivation. Are we doing this for ourselves? Are we doing this for for self-aggrandizement? Or are we doing it for God? Are we doing it because we are his hands, because we are here on the earth and can do things physically for other people or emotionally or spiritually. or That made me think deeply about my own motivations in, in serving, in being a friend. It's important. Uh, this man has obviously dedicated his life to a, a life of service. It's, it's formal in, within a religion. Is that required to serve? What, what is it? How do we live a life of service, following Christ. There is something that, that sort of changed my view of service from a religious leader, a busy religious leader, who spent his whole life in service, but he talked about uh, in, a, in a formal, in an organizational way. But in a talk once, he, was, he talked about his personal ministry. I thought, personal ministry? When does he have time for a personal mm. ministry? I said, if said to myself, if he has a personal ministry, what is mine? What is mine? The people within my circle that need me. I remember once driving with my husband. He was driving. We drove down, and I saw a woman running toward me, and she had a frantic look on her face as if she needed to go somewhere. And to this day, I'm haunted by the fact that we didn't stop and say, what can we do for you? Mm. So how do we do it? You talk about being on our way somewhere are we so often on our so way busy? that we don't stop <laughs> that we don't don't stop we had uh, my wife and i had an experience uh, now 6 years ago that was completely unexpected we volunteered to help uh, uh, with a ukrainian orphanage i had spent some time in ukraine and uh, there were some young people coming to the us and they needed places for these young people to stay and these were orphans older or- orphans that likely wouldn't have a chance to be adopted. And with my experience, I thought, hey, we ought to get involved. And it was late in the process, and we didn't think that they still needed help because the email that was sent to us, forwarded onto us, was three months old. So we decided, well, let's respond and see if they still might need a little help, maybe some translation. I, I speak Russian. 
And uh, sure enough, they still needed a couple homes for these youth. We didn't know that the Lord had plans for us to adopt. And uh, we had children of our own, but we had an experience in feeling that need. And, and had we listened to logic, had we listened to how everything might play out on paper, we would have ran screaming. And <laughs> the experiences since then, we ended up adopting a young man and his um, biological sister, half-sister actually. And it's been such a journey. So it's, and it's opened so many more doors of experience that we wouldn't have been able to imagine even planning something so well. And yet I think we do. I think we plan our lives so meticulously that we put ourselves out of reach of Spontaneity. Yeah, spontaneity. Mm -hmm. So how old were they when you first got him? He was 15 and she was 10. So they were older. We had a 15-year-old and a 10-year-old daughter of our own. We had six children at the time. Instantly, two sets of twins. Yeah, we ended up with (laughs) twins. And and it's been challenging. I don't want to give the impression that it's all just been peachy and and wonderful. It's been challenging, but there have been so many blessings. And growth is challenging so many times. Absolutely. And needed. But Marsh, I think I think the secret there in your willingness to take those children into your home was an impression that you felt that you needed to do this. Like you yeah. say, so many times we get busy in our own life and we just we just go with blinders on yeah. and we only focus on ourselves and what we need to get done. I remember someone once saying that their their wife, they were speaking of their spouse, would sit near the, the back of their congregation on Sundays and look out at the people and just ask for a prompting of who needed who needed a smile, who needed a hug, who was suffering that day. And she always got an answer. And I think oftentimes we think of service as being this grand thing we have to do that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. It's not that way. Sometimes somebody just needs a smile or a hug, and we don't, even sometimes still, we're so involved that we don't look at the people we're passing in the hall. We just keep our eyes focused down or straight ahead when maybe they just needed a smile or a, how you doing today? Or Patty, how often do we talk ourselves out of promptings, the inspirations that we Mm -hmm. get? Ooh, that that probably was just, no, that wasn't very sensible. (laughs) (laughs) He's not going to appreciate my my intrusion. She's not going to want me to do that. That happens all the time. We talk ourselves out of it a lot. One of the things that I love about the life of Christ is he he lived a life of spontaneity, ready for whatever environment. Now, I don't know how foreknowledge works, if he knew those situations would come to be or if he was just open. But the sense, at least from the accounts, are that he was open to what he might come across, that it was a mindset and, and uh, where his heart was. So often, I think, I know I get caught up in, I've got to earn a living, I've got kids, I've got to get to this and that. And, and my wife and I have discussed often, what are we doing? What are the things that we're doing so we can do what we're really doing? And so often, I think I go, well, I'm trying to earn a living, or I'm trying to do this. And, and Christ seemed to, if they needed money, 
they knew it would be provided somehow to pay a tax or whatever, those interactions with Peter. Cutting really open the, the fish ministry, and finding the, the money exactly. you needed. <laughs> and, and there have been experiences that I've had where we've had the faith to go down a path, again, not make sense, and that the fish was cut open mm-hmm. symbolically and, and we were able to do what we needed to do. But again, it's, it's a challenge. How do you get into that mode? I think it's a matter of prayer. I think it's a matter of asking the Lord each day in prayer, help me be aware. To of tap those. you on the shoulder and yeah. say, look, listen. Because that's exactly what the Savior did. He, he looked around. He looked at who needed help, and then he provided. As you've grown up and as you've become older, who are the people that taught you how to serve? How did you know that this was important? I had a family that didn't really serve very much directly, but yet I had a mother who who taught a little boy how to read with, you know, asking for no money and things like that. Uh, It just never occurred to me that that was service. Hmm. Yeah, uh, you mentioned your mother. My mom is someone that that spent and spends. She's uh, 78 this year, and she spends a lot of time in service. She's a volunteer. And from a young age, I watched her with uh, nursing mothers, helping them and, and volunteering with scouts. And she was always the, the best, the feared merit badge counselor. But once they had her, they loved her. And they, he talked about a teacher, too, yeah, that yeah. helped him find his way. We had a substitute teacher when I was growing up that um, was a great example of, of what Reverend Peterson was talking about. She was she would just substitute once in a while when the other teachers were sick or whatever, but she always was positive, and she was always looking for little ways of service. Um, if you did anything that was even remotely good, she was always the first one there to talk about it and and really tell you how great you were in doing that and and uh, I remember we were I was from a farming type community where we were really to be honest with you brutal on substitute teachers but we would always treat Lethe with the greatest respect that was her name Lethe Taji because she would always respect us and uh, she would always serve us and we knew she was there as part of a service to us. Normally, the peer pressure in my little town was to run this substitute teacher out of town as quick as possible, but with Lethe, it was just the opposite. We would defend her, and if anybody did anything bad to, to Lethe, you know, look out. And, uh, and I think that uh, she was the one that taught me service, and she was always focused on on the other person and what she could do to serve them. I wonder how many there are that don't recognize what they've done to bless someone else. And I think the same goes with each of us. Um, I think it's hard to know unless someone takes the time to come back and, and think or, or let them know how that act or that experience has affected them. And, and it, back to this self-aggrandizement, we, we, probably our best not knowing exactly what we've done yeah Yeah. that's what i I was just thinking i think of an 18 year old who in a five-minute conversation brought me to god 
She had no idea what she was doing. She had no clue. But that five or seven minute conversation totally changed the course of my life. Absolutely. I did thank her later. <laughs> but she wasn't aware at that point, I don't think. You know, when you talk about service and someone who has influenced your life as a good example of service, um, I think of my grandmother who had health problems growing up, but uh, never was one to just sit around and pity herself. She would um, take meals to people. She would, you know, mend clothing. She taught me how to sew. She taught me how to cook. And um, I'll forever be grateful for that example of service. I think what we've said here is that the whole clue is being outward focused and yeah. not inward focused. Mm -hmm. Not worrying about our own image or perspective or circumstances, but to be looking out. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists and to Dr. Sean D. Hopkin, especially to Reverend Canon John Peterson for sharing his stories and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation. We welcome your thoughts and ideas about the program. Reach out anytime via email ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find our shows archived online for listening or sharing at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith and subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's interview was recorded on location in Jerusalem. This episode produced with help from Marcus Smith. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join us again soon right here in Good Faith.